Welcome to this Black History Month edition of the Is This Real podcast. So February is almost over, and that's essentially the one month of the year where black writers like me get given the opportunity to essentially tell stories about black history. Um, and companies and institutions basically get to give lip service to um, black stories that I'd say often have to be filtered or edited down to, you know, fit within these narratives that I think are are very easy to essentially um, give. But it's it's put into really stark relief um, for me when I kind of see the current situation within uh, the black community and a lot of the struggles and the violence and the oppression that people face on a, on a regular basis, um, whether it's from the built-in employment that comes with living in this country, um, the mental health outcomes that black folks have to deal with when it comes to um, living their lives and facing racism, among other things. Um, and also, I think also the the individual responsibility that's placed on people um, for their own problems, instead of having a, a system that uplifts communities and places that at the center um, of people's lives. So it's a really stark relief when you have things like the city of Edmonton posting on their Instagram page um, this uh, quote um, promoting Black History Month and, and a museum project. And then the next few slides of their story are essentially this hockey game between the peace officers and uh, the Edmonton Police Association. So it's a, it's a really stark relief and it makes it difficult when, you know, the police and, and, and the, those organizations have been oppressive towards black communities for, for decades. Um, and, you know, to ignore that fact and also to ignore the, the, events of the past couple of months, I think, highlight police violence in Edmonton um, as a problem. We have um, this award that's given out by the Kiwanis Club in Edmonton um, called the Top Cop Award. And it's been found that two out of the five police officers who received that award um, were charged with assault and are investigated right now um, under ACERT. We have a situation with the Edmonton police uh, owning a plane that was uh, held in secret that we just found out about a few weeks ago, and they're looking to buy another plane as another big, big ticket purchase. Um, and they explicitly said that this is, you know, for surveillance purposes um, for, you know, some of the work that they do. But again, the community had no idea that this was actually happening. Um, and, you know, we're also seeing, I think, police doubling down very heavily on this tough on crime rhetoric um, where, you know, there is a growing critique of policing coming from different segments of society. It's not coming from indigenous and black people anymore. I think now it's moving a little bit more into the mainstream of, you know, white liberal folks. So now that that's happening, um, you know, chief of police saying, you know, he doesn't look to social media for any information or, or, or facts. Um you know, articles being written in the Edmonton Journal defending the police by the police commissioner. Um, so I think people are, the police at least are doubling down. Um, and it's very difficult and, and stark to see that happening um, during Black History Month. And especially too when um, we, we've we had a death um, in the Black community um, by the hands um, of police in Calgary, a shooting that happened um, recently where a member of the South Sudanese community, uh, Lejour Toul, was killed by police um, when he was having a mental health crisis. And 
I want to read this post from his stepdaughter that I think does a really good job of explaining the situation and, and what's going on um, with those directly impacted by it. So um, here, here's the post. Um, on February 19th, my stepdad was murdered by the police. They shot him dead execution style five times while he was sitting down. Then they proceeded to leave his dead body on the street for eight full fucking hours. They released a dog on him and he tried defending himself like anybody would do out of pure instinct. And then they fired round after round into his body. They rushed their police dog to the vet, but they let my dad bleed out for eight fucking hours on the street. My dad had extensive PTSD and mental health issues. He was a child soldier back in Sudan. The police were called because he was going through an episode. They came with their weapons drawn and multiple officers and a canine unit. All for what? One singular black man who has a stick? They're spitting out lies saying that they tried reasoning with him and claiming he had a weapon that they won't specify because it was a stick. You dumb fucks tried reasoning with him for one minute. And how the hell are you going to reason with someone going through a full-fledged episode while you are a bunch of weapons, sorry, while you have a bunch of weapons, lights, loud dogs, and under, other sensory overloading shit all around? That would overwhelm anybody in their right state of mind, let alone someone going through a mental break. My dad was unjustly killed, and people seem to care more about a fucking dog that is doing fine and is well and alive, unlike my dad. This situation showed me people look at black people as less than human and seem to be more empathetic to a dog than us. I was watching a news report on YouTube and people were calling my dad racial slurs and wishing the dog a safe and easy recovery. My dad didn't deserve this. My dad didn't deserve this and everybody in my family and community is still in shock. Calgary police, you guys are incompetent, trigger-happy pigs. This was police brutality, and you guys fucked up. The video proof does not lie. ACAB, until I die. BLM, until I die. Rest in peace, and I love you so much. You did not deserve this. I feel like that's a difficult statement to read in, in any circumstance, um, but the fact that it's 2022 and the fact that we've seen everything that we've seen since 2020, um, it's it's really difficult to to read statements like that. And I think there there's a lot of pitfalls that fall with taking an individual tragedy like this for a family and, and trying to use it to advance change in a situation where we already know so clearly all of the problems in our system that led to this happening. And I think almost all of us know clearly what's needed to address these problems, to ensure that this doesn't happen to anyone and no family has to write a statement like this. So I think everything about this is already proof of what we already know, which I think what which I think makes it even more painful, and it, which is why I think also the focus can't be on individual stories to advance the change in a system that we already know um, needs to change for reasons that are proven by stories like this, but for, 
but already exist without families having to suffer from tragedies um, like this situation. And I think it also ultimately rejects this idea of um, the Canadian dream um, or this idea of uh, cultural mosaic and of immigrants coming here to, to seek refuge from the trauma and the problems that they had um, in their home countries. Um, so the victim of this crime was a child soldier in South Sudan. And I think like many other people who come to Canada, um, view it as a, a safe place, uh, a place where they'll, they'll receive help, a place where they can thrive with their families. Um, but I think ultimately the, the failures of our system and the way it's designed, um, it can't handle the reality um, that we, we pat ourselves on the back um, thinking that we create. We can't handle the reality of bringing people into our system where we say that we're going to rehabilitate them or help them or provide them opportunities, when in reality, we just have a system that's racist and that doesn't necessarily put anything into anyone's lives except for individual responsibility and really um, just telling them that they're on their own um, and that ultimately if things do end up turning for the worse. Um, you have the police to come and supposedly, you know, de-escalate and make the situation better. Um, so the original traumas that you have from your previous experiences, whether you come from a country that, you know, is struggling through war, if you've been a part of that conflict yourself, um, all those things are amplified when you come and you have to face additional pressures. And I think also you have to contemplate with this idea that, You've been sold um, a myth, a lie, essentially, that all of your expectations um, and everything that this country projected onto itself um, and onto others um, it actually isn't true and that your life is going to be incredibly difficult. And um, I've, wor I was, I've been working and um, I was filming a documentary about the South Sudanese community in Edmonton and Calgary last summer. And... We talked to, to many people in the community and filmed community events and interviews and um, stories surrounding death um, and, and also, I think, joy and, and prosperity and resilience. But I think one thing that really stuck with me and one thing I, I keep thinking about is um, how people from the South Sudanese community um, explain to me their their disdain for Canada and, and their their uh, their deep sorrow and the, their deep sadness with with seeing the reality of their lives and their of their children's lives and and um, how punitive and how difficult things have been for them um, versus what 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 they thought it would be um, and and seeing how devalued their lives are um, I think I think that's definitely stuck with me and and it's, it's hard to come up with answers um, for these people because I think, you know, like I said before, it seems like, especially during Black History Month, we're more interested in uh, performing and giving lip service and, and in advancing narratives that ignore the, the, the reality that people face um, and um, in, in this moment that we live in right now. In this situation, like a lot of the other high-profile murders of black folks, I think the family is ultimately put in a very difficult situation, and I wish them peace and, um, 
and whatever support they can receive during this difficult time for them. Um, grieving the death of a loved one and a murder in the public eye, I think, is, is an awful situation, especially, I think, when it intersects with, um, like I said, a lot of the other issues that are faced by the Black community. So I wish the family peace in this difficult time, and I hope they can find the support that they need. So as we continue to talk about cautionary tales around police, use of force, and violence, the Emergencies Act was just passed today in Canada, as we're talking, and essentially, uh, as a response to the convoy and all of this freedom convoy protest, um, we're seeing a disturbing increase in police power. And this has been brought on, I think, by this kind of regression in public discourse when it comes to people who are usually liberals um, calling for, I'd say, like military intervention, you know, financial warfare, surveillance, um, and all these police powers and state powers um, being reinforced um, essentially because they don't agree with the views or the frustration of the protesters. Um, and quite frankly, the, the kind of brutal tactics and the successful tactics that the protesters have used to have their concerns heard or, you know, to go against the state um, in this specific way. So in this situation, we have people like journalist Justin Ling, who's been on the ground in Ottawa covering the protest, essentially saying that, you know, praising the police for their restraint against protesters as they started cracking down and clearing the streets. So I think the biggest problem with this is that, you know, we know that the police would never have this kind of restraint if the protest was Black and Indigenous people in the same disruptive way, or even in a much more, um, in, in a much less confrontational way, the police would crack down and wouldn't have this kind of restraint. Um, and using this kind of argument of, you know, police using less force as a reason to give them more power is clearly wrong when, like I said, we know that they would use that um, differently in a different situation. Um, and I think also this idea that, um, you know, if you're doing something illegal or um, like the protesters are, um, or if, you know, if you're not, um, you know, participating or supporting what they're doing, then, you know, you have nothing to worry about. Um, and, you know, the following the law is the, the, the utmost kind of standard for not having um, things happen to you that, you know, may be viewed as negative. Um, but I think it's clear here to see that the fact that we're giving these tactics and the fact that we're taking things really lightly, like people's ability to access their own funds and their bank accounts, um, the fact that we're taking this lightly because it's being done to conservatives completely ignores the fact that uh, many people have very, very rightful grievances against the state. And by just giving these things away, um, because they're happening to people that we don't like is completely short-sighted in realizing that these things are going to come back um, threefold potentially to um, hurt people who are trying to have um, their voice heard against the state or trying to challenge the state in a meaningful way. Um, so by saying things like, um, you know, you wouldn't have to worry if you're, you're, you're not doing anything that the Freedom Convoy is doing, um, I think ignores the fact that people like land defenders, 
um, who are trying to protect indigenous land or uh, black people who are trying to, you know, uphold their own rights against the state or racism um, will very easily face this kind of resistance or worse um, in many cases. Um, so we're, we're going to be going through some of the more um, awful takes um, on the next episode of a cringe corner hopefully um, going through some of the liberal tweets that we saw about the convoy and I think yeah this kind of conversation this kind of discourse serves to funnel more and more power more and more resources into the police um, and again in a fashion like we mentioned before where it doesn't necessarily even matter what the performance was um, if they show restraint, if they manage things properly, then we give them more funding, we give them more power. If they aren't able to manage things, well, then that's an argument for, you know, why they sh should again receive more funding um, to be able to manage things better. Um, so in my own personal life, I, I actually attended the counter protest in Edmonton um, that was essentially blocking part of the convoy um, or basically the entire convoy that was making its way to the legislature. So uh, a couple dozen people uh, essentially stopped, blocked one side of traffic that the convoy was coming towards. And then we allowed cars to pass on the other side. You know, people were holding up signs, some, you know, more funny um, than others. You know, someone had a sign that said, you know, let the babies nap. Um, I, I uh, was holding up a sign that said honk for communism. Uh, I think that was pretty funny. Um, but what I essentially saw, um, once we started the protest, um, a police car essentially came, um, and, uh, they, they, they honked at us, um, using their, you know, louder than usual police kind of noise to essentially, I think, try to intimidate or get us to disperse. Um, but I think it was clear from the beginning uh, where the police was positioned, um, you know, behind the counter protesters. Um, it was clear who the problem was and, you know, where the enforcement was going to happen. Uh, it wasn't going to happen towards the people who were um, given a court injunction. It wasn't going to happen towards the people who were, you know, harassing people um, in downtown Edmonton consistently. Um, it was going to happen to the counter protesters, um, the people who were um, trying to put an end to what was happening um, every Saturday in Edmonton. So what began with one police car uh, essentially turned into a paddy wagon um, and about 10 or so police officers and the numbers kept growing with batons um, forming a formation essentially uh, to, to disperse the counter protesters. Um, so things just continued to escalate as time went on. So not only were we kind of faced with the convoy, which was also, you know, trying to pressure and trying to heckle or yell or do whatever they could to get us to move. Um, but like I said, we saw the police um, mobilizing quickly in growing numbers with, you know, weapons of violence, batons to just like, yeah, crack down on the counter protest. Nothing came that far after an hour or so the group that we were with decided to leave um, because the police essentially moved in front of us in an attempt to, like I said, clear us out. Um, so we weren't interested in getting arrested or, you know, dealing with that kind of violent confrontation. So we decided to leave. 
the convoy, as planned, you know, made their way to legislature, continued with whatever, you know, you'd consider to be illegal acts. Um, and so I think in like the personal kind of um, anecdote, you can kind of see a few things about what we were kind of talking about when it comes to delegating this power to police in a situation where you'd think that they would be using that added power to police or to prevent this kind of protest from a side that, you know, I personally don't agree with or I personally don't see um, as valid. Um, but that power wasn't used to, you know, crack down on those people. Um, it was quickly used to, you know, intimidate and disperse the counter protest. Um, so I think it's it's a small example, but I think it, it fits within the larger thing of um, by continuing to think that um, police are going to side with whoever you think that they should crack down on um, as a justification for giving them more power um, is very short-sighted. And oftentimes I think, at least in my experience in this situation, um, you know, we see what side the police choose to, to fall down on. Um, and regardless, I think we know that these violent powers um, and this kind of enforcement um, shouldn't be uh, brought down on anyone um, for that case. So this is where we are now. The uh, federal government has passed the Emergencies Act. We have um, more power given to the RCMP. Um, along with municipal police also um, being pushed to enforce and being pushed to be given more of this authority to um, essentially, yeah, put in put into place law and order and to prevent people from uh, challenging the state. So I think it's important in this moment to uh, challenge these notions, um, especially when they come from people who are... Um, I'd say from liberal backgrounds um, and who are making these kind of short-sighted arguments. But um, I think generally, I think it also brings in a larger question of um, what, what what's going to be allowable when it comes to um, challenging the state and um, what are the future powers of government when it comes to cracking down on uh, dissent? Because I think ultimately the problems that we're faced with that are stemming from um, the state are still in place. And I think there will still need to be meaningful challenges um, to a lot of issues where you're gonna have to confront the state um, when it comes to defending land, when it comes to protecting communities against the police, when it comes to um, a lot of issues. So if we have the Emergencies Act in place now, and if we have a culture that's so easily able to just hand off more authority, more power, um, to the police, um, what does that mean for our ability to challenge these systems that we have in place? Um, so I think that's the larger question that we have to deal with um, that's been influenced by the situation that we have today. I want to place a focus on a piece of legislation um, today, the Police Act specifically. And to do that, I talked with Tom Engel, who we've had on the podcast before, and he's an Edmonton-based lawyer who works uh, as a criminal defense trial lawyer and is very involved in a lot of issues when it comes to police and policing reform. 
So Tom and I go through a few things when we talk about the Police Act um, and specifically the changes that we want to see and that he's pushing for in his work. So things like police investigating police, things like the loophole that allows police officers to retire without facing charges um, if they choose to leave their jobs. Um, the basic authority and the power that we give police, I think, is really key to understanding and I think reforming this legislation and seeing how those changes might impact the way that people not only interact but are policed and face consequences from um, bad policing. Um, so I feel like this is coming in a moment too where it's not necessarily getting all the attention that it can um, because it's a static piece of legislation that, you know, has its changes and changes over time. But those changes, I think, are often influenced by uh, the needs of police and the needs of politicians who are trying to get reelected, not necessarily the needs of people um, every day who are interacting with police or have to be policed um, in the real world. So... Yeah, Tom makes a lot of good points, and um, we're coming into a provincial election in 2023, so now's the time, really, to, um, I think, look into these things and see what's possible. So this might be a simple question, but why does the Police Act need to be reformed? And uh, for listeners who may not know, the last time it was, I guess, updated was in 2011, and it was introduced in 1988, but in 2022, why does it need to be reformed? Well, I'm not the only one who thinks that the Police Act has to be reformed. At the, the consultative process that I participated in for the CTLA with that the government started, in uh, the summer of 2018, the NDP government, the, the Minister of Justice at that time, Kathleen Ganley, started the review process. And I was invited from the very outset for the CTLA, and we were involved in, in a very intensive review process, we, we have monthly meetings, for example. There are all kinds of stakeholders. All the stakeholders you can imagine who should have been there were there. And then it was very clear that every, all the stakeholders agreed on, on the need for drastic reform of the Police Act. And I think it was unanimous that it was agreed that the police should no longer investigate complaints. That, that is, that's the giant reform that was recommended. But then the uh, UCP got elected and I, they shelved the whole project until George Floyd. And then Minister Doug Schweitzer at the time quickly pulled it off the shelf and put it into action again. And then we were involved in an even more urgent, intensive process. And my understanding is that the final report, which I haven't seen, was scheduled to go to cabinet in December of last year. And then cabinet will make a decision. I don't know exactly what the recommendations are. I'd be shocked if it wasn't uh, to take to take investigating the police out of the hands of the police. But there were a lot of other, there were a lot of other recommendations. For example, big one would, would be uh, police act jurisdiction over an officer being lost when the officer retires, which has let people off the hook 
For example, Constable McLaughlin in Calgary, who shot and killed Anthony Heffernan. He, he escaped any, any uh, responsibility for that. The Alberta Crown Prosecution Service decided not to prosecute him for that, which in my view was a perverse decision, but we still had the police act process and then he beat that by, by retiring. So that, that is something like lawyers, for example, don't, don't beat law society discipline by retiring. You, you still have to go through the disciplinary process unless the law society allows you to retire. So that's, that's, that's an example of an important one. And I don't, I'd be shocked if that wasn't a recommendation. And that one would really shock me if the Minister of, uh, of Justice and Solicitor General didn't recommend to Cabinet that they agree with that one. So that's where it is. And now we're just waiting for the result. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the RCMP because the RCMP police is a big part of this province. And that, of course, wasn't under review in in the the Alberta Solicitor General's uh, review of the Police Act it has no application, but um, having said that, you know it's kind of I'm kind of torn a little bit on the idea of creating a, an Alberta Police Service because if they did, they'd be subject to the Police Act, mm -hmm. and the Police Act already is much more. Um, robust in terms of civilian oversight of the police than the RCMP Act. And successive federal governments have failed to address that for the RCMP. For example, the civilian oversight uh, body, the uh, Civilian Review and Complaints Commission, under the RCMP Act, has no decision-making power. So all they can do is recommend things. Like if you lose your complaint, if the complaint is dismissed by the RCMP, you can ask the CRCC to review it. And they'll review it. It takes about three years or more. The delay is disgraceful. But, but the RCMP commissioner has the power to just disagree with the commission. And then nothing is done. So... We've been advocating at the federal level for the CRCC to be given the same powers as the Law Enforcement Review Board under the Police Act. The LARB has the power to, in some circumstances, fire an officer. Has that ever actually happened? Have officers ever been directly fired by the Law Enforcement Review Board? What's happened is uh, I, I don't think they have. I think all that's come to the LARB have been appeals by officers who've been fired at a disciplinary hearing at the level of the police service. But the, but the point is they do have the power. Most of this show's focus, and I guess a lot of the public focus, at least in Edmonton, has been on our local um, Edmonton police force. Um, but there's been the larger conversation now provincially because of Casey Madu and the UCP about you know replacing the RCMP. Um, what do you think the current state of the RCMP is in Alberta when it comes to um, policing and accountability? And, you know, there has been a few pretty high profile um, cases of police brutality, um, specifically one against an Indigenous um, Indigenous chief. I remember that in Fort McMurray. But from your perspective, um, what, what, what have been the problems and what, have, what has been um, 
the situation with the RCMP in Alberta. Okay, so you, you talk about the folks being Edmonton, but don't forget the RCMP, Police Shirt Park, St. Albert, Leduc, Fort Saskatchewan. And uh, this is part of the, uh, I guess, the metro Edmonton area. Um, so, so the RCMP, their investigation of complaints is generally, it's disgraceful. And I think they do it because they can get away with it. I think they do it that way because they can do it. And there's no accountability at the top. Now, the, the CRCC has been issuing some pretty aggressive criticisms of RCMP investigations recently. Um, but again, they don't have any power to order things. I've noticed that the CRCC has managed to, to convince the commissioner of the RCMP to agree with them. And if they do that, then what they recommend will happen because the commissioner will make it happen. The difference is that for serious injury or death cases for the RCMP, they are subject to the police act under section 46.1 and they will be subject to an ACERT investigation. So that's different. That's different. But the vast majority of complaints against the RCMP are not serious injury or death. And that remains with the RCMP and the RCMP in their investigations, they don't even follow the RCMP Act. It's just brazenly don't follow it. And we pointed out to them, you're not following the act and they just go ahead. It seems like a weird kind of situation to be in. And it seems like a lot of these situations come down to something that you mentioned a few years ago when we were talking um, like political will and how a lot of these things are kind of just left up to provincial and federal politicians who sometimes either don't have the will to make it happen, choose to put things on the shelf, like you said, that were already worked on, or just, yeah, completely ignore this thing like the RCMP. It, it, it kind of seems um, dangerous to leave all these things neglected to the point where um, it's like decades go pass and, and we see just no change on on what you said are, are pretty, pretty egregious um, disregard for the law, I guess. Maybe there'll be a little more political will at the level of the federal government and joined in by the RCMP commissioner if, for example, they think, well, you know, maybe we can tell the Alberta government, okay, look, we'll reform the whole accountability process. Does that help keep the RCMP in Alberta? I mean, if I was the commissioner, I'd be, I'd be behind that for sure. But the George Floyd situation certainly did help develop some political will nationally and provincially to reform the, uh, the police accountability process. And we shouldn't underestimate that. Of course, the other big player in this in terms of accountability is the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service, which in my view is being derelict in its duty to prosecute officers. Even when, even when a charge is laid, like there was a recent example of Kyle Parkhurst who got his head drilled into a wall while he's handcuffed and was lying on the ground. He gets picked up, gets his head drilled into a wall, and it's captured on video. And a certain investigates, recommends a criminal charge. The Crown Prosecution Service agrees to prosecute. And then a month later, without giving any reason, the Crown drops it. This, 
This inspires uh, disrespect for the administration of justice in this province when it comes to accountability for police officers. So I saw a couple of weeks ago, um, Michael Elliott made a tweet about um, someone in an organization that you're working with having um, defund the police or abolish the police in their in their Twitter description, um, and that being, you know, a point of contention. Um, so you've had your fair share of critics over the years. Um, some of them more, I'd say, credible than others or with more credible claims. Um, so I guess from that situation or other situations, what, are, what, what, are your, what is your takeaway about those um, critics? And, and maybe are there any memorable or maybe even um, funny moments that you have from uh, those uh, kind of situations? You know, there was a period of time that I, I had to fend off complaint again to the law society after complaining to the law society about me. I think I was up to about, you know, in the area of 25 to 30. And they are they were from police service, the, the Edmonton Police Service, uh, you know, individual officers. But I'm sure that the union was behind behind them, and they were they were basically trying to sh- to shut me up, to intimidate me into stopping what I do. None of none of that, none of those complaints were upheld. I had to deal with them and. Um, and there were there was the case of the uh, a bunch of EPS officers unlawfully accessing information about me from their police information systems, and obviously they were I'm sure they were trying to see if maybe I forgot to appear in traffic court and had a warrant and they'd have the pleasure of arresting me or something like that, or they could just find something that they could use. I know that. Uh, the Edmonton Police Service and the Edmonton Police Association is very upset about my Twitter account. Very upset. And, you know, uh, I get the impression that they're very upset that I sources of my information comes from within the police service. I know they, I know they're very upset about that. And uh, I remember a letter from uh, the Edmonton Police Association that was published on on their Twitter account, indicating that I and uh, those who provide me with information have lost their way or something like that. But you have to think of why, why would somebody within the EPS give me information? You know, why don't they just raise it with the chief? (laughs) It ain't going to go very well for them if they start start raising problems with the chief because it's going to get, because the code of silence um, is strong within any police organization and it exists in the Edmonton police service. And, and if you, if you make a complaint within the Edmonton police service, you're likely to have a very short career as a police officer. So they're whistleblowers. That's what they are. They're whistleblowers and a whistleblower can breach confidence. They're supposed to keep information confidential that they gain while they're a police officer, unless unless there's a clear public interest in exposing that publicly and they don't have any other way to effectively deal with it. So they're, they're bitching and whining 
about me um, exposing information, um, it's misplaced. They should be they should be trying to figure out well why are members doing this? Obviously, they're not happy with what's going on. They don't do anything about that. They're just they. I'm sure they'd like to track down the uh, the whistleblowers and then deal with them. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, and and you know, ACERT is so overloaded with 46.1 investigations, serious investigations that they have to turn back some investigations to the EPS to investigate. They just can't handle them. They're already, they already have a backlog of about three years. So they've created within the professional standards branch a 46.1 unit. Who do they have working in that unit? Guy by the name of Dave Radmanovich. He didn't get caught wearing one of those shirts, but he was a member of the same squad. And that code of silence subculture was deeply infused in that squad. Then he got caught. He got invited to present at the Citizen Police Academy, put on by, I think, the uh, Edmonton Police Service and the Edmonton Police Commission. They invited Rabanovich to speak to that. They had all sorts of citizens. They had police commissioners there. And he, he was talking about how in policing the inner city, he would he would uh, have people ride the lightning. I think it had something to do with not having to get your hands dirty or something like that. But anyway, he was telling them that he would have them, these, these the homeless people in that area, ride the lightning, which is the taser. So now this guy is in the 46.1 unit. So I tweeted about it, and I guess they weren't happy about that. I view uh, Mike Elliott and Chief McPhee as being a team. And I think there's pretty strong evidence of that with McPhee promoting Elliott to staff sergeant while he's still in office and outside the regular promotion process. So I don't, um, Mike Elliott's uh, criticism of one of the policing committee members being a lawyer who advocates, who is a police abolitionist. <laughs> I, and, and, and what he did was, he said, he quoted me by saying, the interest of the policing committee is to have the best policing possible within Edmonton. He figures this is a contradiction. What she meant by that was hoping to get to the point where you don't need police. Okay, that's a pretty idealistic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, if she's on our committee, that doesn't mean that the chair of the committee, me, has to agree with that. We have, we have very smart lawyers who are knowledgeable on the committee and they bring different viewpoints. And he seems to think that it, that I should have disallowed it as if, as if I have veto power about who's on a CTLA subcommittee. Would, even if I had the power, I, I would not have done it. 
she's a valued member of the, of the committee and and that it was obvious she would be uh, when she joined the committee. So I, I just think that kind of criticism is like really reaching, really reaching for something to criticize me about it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. It was really nice to speak with Tom again about a lot of these important issues. We'll be releasing more episodes along with uh, our different kind of segments, uh, including the Cringe Corner uh, coming soon. And uh, reach out to us on social media or through any other channel if you want to continue the discussion about these important issues um, or have any feedback or comments Um, or just want to, yeah, just reach out and uh, stay in touch. And uh, we'll be back pretty soon in March with another episode. And uh, yeah, all the best. Take it easy.